Spent the whole day basically at home with my family. Did nothing. It was awesome. It's exactly what I wanted to do. I uh, did get free limeberry, uh, so we did go out for that. Got my birthday limeberry. But yeah, no, 40, 42 now. My, my daughter said that I must be wiser with all my gray hair. Uh, so I'm not sure that was a compliment or what, but um, yeah. Hebrews chapter 4, here we go. Um, we, uh, if you are, are joining us today, then you might not uh, be caught up. So Hebrews 4 is the continuation and the conclusion of an argument that the author has been making since chapter 3. And so as we start chapter 4, let me recap chapter 3. In chapter 3, the author has warned the church to not be like Israel in the Old Testament when they came out of Egypt. If you remember, God brought Israel out of Egypt with the ten plagues, brought them through the Red Sea, crushed the Egyptian army, took them to Mount Sinai, where he revealed himself in lightning and thunder, and the mountain trembled. He gave the Ten Commandments. He provided manna for them. He led them with a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He did many mighty acts and miracles. And then they come to the brink of entering into the promised land, and rather than enter into the promised land believing that God is good, believing that God is powerful, believing that God is able to provide for them, they rejected God. They did not believe in God, and so they did not enter into the promised land. And so what we learned as we were looking at chapter 3 is that salvation is not an event, but it's a transformation. And today I really want us to think of it like a race. And salvation is not merely just the starting of a race, but it's the entire race from start to finish. And so we're going to keep this kind of race metaphor as we make our way through our text today. And so how does this relate to the church that the author is writing to, and how does it relate to us? Um, Well, the church knows the far greater miracle of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to then rise three days later from the grave. Um, But they're wrestling with temptation. They're wrestling with pain and persecution and trials. And so they're being tempted to abandon their faith. They're being tempted, just as Israel was tempted because of the trials and the things they had gone through, to not enter the promised land. So the church is being tempted because of pain, because of trials, because of persecution, to not keep running the race. And so what the author is going to do, in essence, he's going to be calling us, run the race of faith so that we will enter into the very rest of God. And so we will talk about God's rest today. That's the title, Enter the Rest. And so as we move into our text, we'll begin defining that. But today I want you to think, and I want you to understand, the main point is that we must run the race of faith so we will enter the rest of God. So if you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to stand. Uh, We're going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. We stand here each and every week as a means of reminding us that this word comes to us inspired by God with his full authority for the purpose of equipping us and encouraging us. So here we go, chapter 4, verse 1. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as, it, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me pray. Father, Father, give us wisdom today as we look at your word. God, help us to see the truth that is here. May this truth transform us. May this truth strengthen us. May this truth convict us. And Lord, because of what you have said today, and because of your grace that you give to us through your spirit, Lord, I pray that we would all be encouraged to run the race, that we would press on in our faith, that we would not abandon our faith. And if there is anyone here who has not yet believed in you, have trusted in you, I pray that through your word today that you would give life. And they would believe in you, they'd enter your rest, and they would run the race that you have given us. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so, in one sense, this is a pretty complicated passage. The structure is strange. It doesn't flow real easily. In many ways, it's probably uh, the hardest chapter in Hebrews. And yet the point, I think as we go through it, becomes quite clear. Uh, for one, 12 times in chapters 3 and 4, we read about God's rest. In chapter 3, the author says, The church must not be like Israel when they came out of Egypt and rebelled and did not enter his rest. In fact, the author repeatedly quotes Psalm 95 in chapter 3, verse 11, in chapter 4, verse 3, in chapter 4, verse 5. And he says, referring to Old Testament Israel that came out of Egypt, they shall not enter my rest. And so, but to the church of Hebrews, as well as to us today, the author is saying, enter God's rest. We see that in chapter 4, verse 1. The promise of entering his rest still stands. Chapter 4, verse 6. It remains for some to enter it, referring to the rest. Chapter 4, verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Chapter 4, verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest. So the whole thing is about rest. 
And the author is saying, you can't stay where you're at. You need to enter this rest, or to go back to our, our analogy, you're in a race, you must keep moving towards the finish line, towards this rest that God has for us. And so, um, in order to, to move through the passage, we need to first understand, what, what is this rest? What does it mean to enter the rest? And so let me give kind of a definition, and then we're going to break it down into two parts. Um, the rest that God offers us refers to the full inheritance of our salvation in Christ. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the full inheritance of our salvation in Christ. So when you hear rest, I want you to think fullness of our salvation. And so... Um, we're going to see this in two ways in the text. There's a present reality of this rest, and yet more, uh, the majority of the time he's talking about it, there is a future reality of this rest. And so we'll start with the present. Look at verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. So he's saying if you've believed in Jesus Christ, then you are justified. You are declared righteous. You are saved. You are a child of God. You have entered the rest. And in fact, when we look at different parts of Scripture, like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he will say, if you have believed in Christ, then you have been given every single spiritual blessing that is in Christ. So if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus, then right now, the very truth that you can know is that you have every blessing in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Every single blessing. And yet, we know that we don't experience them in their fullness right now right and so there's this future aspect in fact like we said the majority of times when we're reading through chapter four this rest seems to be something future so we have entered and yet we're being called to enter it um, it's both present and future and so we we see this future reality in, in different texts. In fact, Chris preached last week, and one of the texts he was reading was Romans 8, 29, and verse 30. And in verse 30, we read that one day, those who have been uh, predestined and called and justified will also be what? We will be, do you remember? We'll be glorified. Has that happened yet? No, but it's promised. If you've been called, if you've been justified, you will be glorified. Chapter, uh, verse 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we're told that one day we'll be made perfect like Christ. We will see Christ as he is, and we'll be made like him. Has that happened yet? No. So that's a future reality. Now, we're being made like Christ, and we will be fully made like Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, we read this. For here we have no lasting city. So here, in this world right now, we have no lasting city. But the city, but we see the city that is to come, meaning the new heavens and new earth that God is going to bring forth when Jesus returns. So again, we have, we've been saved, and yet at the same time, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul can say, you are saved and you are being saved. So the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of our blessings, we will experience when Christ returns. So... Um, at the return of Christ, 
is the end of the race. That's the time that we enter into the fullness of God's rest. So author is going to say, when you believe, you enter in his rest. But he's going to keep telling us, you must keep moving. You must keep running so you will enter the rest when Christ returns that fullness of the rest. And what we read in our text is that this idea of rest, meaning the fullness of all of God's blessings for us in Christ Jesus, that was the purpose of creation. If you look at verses 3 and 4, look there. He's saying Israel did not enter the rest, but he's not saying they didn't enter because it wasn't available. Then in verse 3 he says, Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. What's the point? The author's point is that God's rest has been available since the very beginning of creation. He made humanity, you and I, in his image so we would enjoy his presence. That's the purpose of of God creating all things. That he would make us so we would enjoy him, so that we would love him, so that we would glorify him. And that rest has been available since the beginning of creation. And so before we look at how we enter God's rest, he's first going to tell us why Israel did not enter God's rest. And so there's there's a warning in this. And as we look at what, what Israel did, we're being warned, Do not run like them. Do not follow their path, but rather continue on in obedience. So two reasons we are told that Israel did not enter God's rest. Look at verse 2. We are told, for good news came to us just as to them. So good news came to us, the church, just as to them, Old Testament Israel. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So why did the message not benefit Israel? Why did they not enter God's rest? Well, we're told because they were not united by faith. They did not have faith in God. Now think about this. They saw the mighty acts. They saw the, they saw the, um, the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea. They saw the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. They saw all of these great acts, and yet they did not believe. They heard it. They saw it, but yet they did not enter into the rest. They were really, really close. So I want you to think about how this applies to us. Being being a part of church, gathering with the church, does not save you. Reading your Bible does not save you. Growing up in a Christian family does not somehow impart like spiritual super genes inside of you that you are automatically saved. Does not save you. Salvation is not about just gaining information. It's not that like if I just say it the right way, then you're saved. And sometimes we think about that when we are evangelizing, right? We're going to share the gospel or we get freaked out and we won't share the gospel because we're like, well, I don't want to screw it up and not say it the right way. As if all they need to hear is this perfect combination of words and then they're going to be like, oh, well, that makes sense. It's more than information. It's also believing in that information. It's trusting in that. It's believing that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. 
that he has come to die for us, that he rose from the grave, and that only in him is there life. You can hear that all day long. The Pharisees knew all of the Old Testament. They had it memorized. And yet when Jesus came, they're like, you're not the Messiah. They saw him raise a Lazarus from the dead. And then in that same chapter, they're saying, hey, we need to kill this guy. So they saw amazing things. They were really close, and yet they did not enter into the rest of God. And so we need to remember, we can gather, we can be really close to the message. We can hear the message. We can be a part of a whole body of believers, and even though we're with them, we're not really with them. Does that make sense? There's a warning here. All of Israel, they all saw these things. 600,000 men come out, of, come out of Egypt, we're told. Two over the age of 20 entered the promised land. There's a warning for us that we must truly believe the message of God's word. So we must have faith in God. Now the second reason, look at verse 6. There we read, they failed to enter because of disobedience. You might say, well, well how do we know they didn't have faith? How do we know they didn't really believe in God? Well, because they did not obey. If they had entered into the promised land, it would have shown that they had faith in God. Their acts of disobedience proved their lack of faith. All throughout God's word, we see real faith produces obedience. All through God's word. We don't, we don't obey to earn salvation, but real faith produces obedience in fact i encourage you go read the book of james or go read the book of first john those are just short books five chapters each amazing books um, with a very clear message real faith produces obedience in christ our acts of disobedience like where we disobey god's word that reveals areas that we're not trusting in god and to be clear we all are guilty of that right like, none of us just, like, read God's word and, like, I got that. And, like, we just obey it perfectly. Like, when that happens, Jesus will be here and we will be glorified. So until that moment, you and I, we read God's word and we obey a lot of it, but there's still areas we don't obey. There's still areas where we struggle with our, with our trust in God. And you, you can find out where those are because those are the acts of disobedience that we do. Those are where we grumble. At least that was one of the clear signs we saw of Israel. So where you're angry, where you're grumbling, where you're impatient, those are just revealing areas that we are not believing in God. And so that is one reason when we gather with one another, we're called. Well, that's one reason we're called together so that we see each other, so that we know each other, so that we see areas where we're believing in God and we also see areas in each other where we're impatient, where we grumble. Because what does that do? That shows where we're struggling. So that tells us how to pray for one another. It also informs us maybe we need to help, correct, come alongside, spur one another on because we're struggling in our faith. And this is something, don't think that you're immune to this. Every single person until Christ returns is struggling in their acts of obedience, which means we're struggling in our faith and therefore we need one another to encourage us to spur us on. So that is the two ways that the author shows they didn't enter because they didn't have faith and didn't obey. Now, um, 
before we look at how we enter God's rest, I want to look at verses 8 and 9. So if you have your Bibles, just look there at verses 8 and 9. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Again, chapter 4 is just a little, it's clunky. It feels clunky when you're reading through it. You're like, how does this flow? How does this work? But So what's the point here? Well, remember, the church of Hebrews, they've been persecuted, they've been arrested, they've had possessions taken from them. It's illegal to be a Christian, and so they're constantly under persecution in the first century. And so they're beginning to wrestle with their faith, and they're going, is this worth it? Are we experiencing spiritual blessings right now? What is happening? Maybe we should abandon the faith. Maybe we should go back to Judaism because Judaism is legal. And if we go back to being a Jew, nobody will persecute us and it will be easier. So that's what they're wrestling with. And so the author knows that, so he's going to address that. And that's what he does here in these verses. We've also seen how he's done that in chapter 1, and then chapter 2, and then chapter 3. And so again, he's addressing their unbelief, their desire to go back to Judaism by explicitly pressing in on that area. And I just want to encourage you, this is what we do. When we talk to a fellow believer who's beginning to wrestle in their faith, and they're saying, you know, I'm thinking about abandoning the faith and doing this. We need to do what the author does here. He says, well, let's look at what Scripture says. Let's try to understand this first just biblically. Let's, let's see what the Bible says about this situation to make sure we're thinking rightly about it. That's what we're called to do. And so the issue here for this church is going back to Judaism. So that's why he's specifically pressing on that. But if they were looking at going to atheism, if they were looking at going to any other worldview, the same principle we would apply. We would take God's word and we'd say, well, how does this speak in to this situation? And so that's what I want you to see here. The author, he's specifically addressing areas of unbelief in the church. And this is what our word can do. The Bible God has given us is sufficient to encourage us, to correct us, to equip us, to inform us, to show us what real truth is, and to show us the lies of other worldviews that would differ from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, here we go. Two things to note here on these verses. Number one, because of sin, we always try to find something other than Jesus to satisfy our hearts. And we do this especially when pain and trials come our way. When pain and trials, and the longer we're in pain and trials, we will begin to question our faith. We will begin to doubt. That's what the church is doing. Rather than keeping their eyes on Christ, they're beginning to fixate on the pain, on the trial, on the situation. And so because that's their focus, they're saying, how do we alleviate this? Sin will always want you to find satisfaction in something other than Jesus. And if we perceive that our hearts aren't being satisfied in Christ, we will look for something else. That's what's happening here. Secondly, the author is now going to show how foolish it is to actually go back to Judaism. In these verses, the author is addressing the foolishness of rejecting Jesus, turning from Jesus, and going to Judaism. After all, he says... Joshua did not ultimately give Israel rest. Well, now, 
Who's Joshua? Just real quick Bible recap. So we got Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. Moses wasn't allowed to bring them into the promised land. They wander through the desert for 40 years. Now Moses is going to die. All the leaders have died. Joshua now is going to be the one who will lead Israel into the promised land. And many of the Jews, in fact, there are many Christians today who think that this land of Israel is the blessing for, for Israel, for Jews, and that they need to have this land. The land in the Middle East given to Israel, that is the blessings of God to Israel. But what does the text say? The text says Joshua brings them in and they did not enter the rest. What we see is that this land east of the Mediterranean offers no such rest. But what are we told? We're told, just like what the author has done throughout the book of Hebrews, he said in chapter 1, Jesus is greater than angels. In chapter 2, we see how Jesus is the great high priest who comes. And now in chapter 3, or in chapter 2, Three also, we saw Jesus greater than Moses. Now, in chapter 4, we see Jesus greater than Joshua. Because Joshua, Joshua led them into the promised land in the Old Testament. But what is the Greek word for Joshua? It's Jesus. And so Jesus is now the one in the New Testament that we see is the greater Joshua who truly brings about the blessings for God's people. And you can't miss the parallel. Israel is led through the wilderness, a time of testing and trials, where then they will enter into the promised land, right? The author is clearly, in chapters 3 and 4, showing the church also is in a wilderness-type setting where we're in our experiencing testing and trials, where then when Jesus returns, he will do what? Bring about a new heavens and new earth, where we will then dwell with him forever in what? A new Really a new promised land, which is really the fullness of our salvation in Christ Jesus, the rest of God. So what he's saying, he's saying, you can't go back to Judaism. There was no rest there. There's only rest coming in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, the greater Joshua, the greater Moses, the one who's greater than the angels, the one whom the whole Old Testament was pointing to, it's he that gives us rest in God. So he says, don't look back to the shadows of the Old Testament, but look forward to the reality of Jesus Christ and how all of the Old Testament moves us to believing in Jesus. And so that's what he's doing. He said, they didn't, they didn't enter because of unbelief and because of disobedience. He then shows the foolishness of going back to Judaism, and then he gives us three ways that we enter into God's rest. He wants us to know, how do we keep running the race? We've been saved, now how do we continue on in our salvation? We started the race, how do we finish the race? And so there's three things. Number one, we believe Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. Look at verse 2. We see Israel did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. And then verse 3 we read, but we who have believed enter that rest. The way we enter into the rest of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father. No one enters the rest but through me. The author of Hebrews has shown that Jesus is God. And he's the one who's come in the flesh to save us from our sins. He came as our high priest that he would offer a perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins. That's what we read at the end of chapter 2. And what was that sacrifice? It's Jesus. So not only is he the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He comes so that he would be the one to put our restless hearts at rest. I mean, it's important. In our sin, we look for anything to satisfy us. That's what our hearts do. Our hearts are restless. We think that relationships will satisfy us. We think that sex will satisfy us. We think that stuff will satisfy us. We think the next pay raise or a bigger house or the affirmation and respect of others. If we just have these things, then I'll be satisfied. Then then I'll know that I made it. But they all fell. And we know this. We know that they all fell because we're made in God's image. And we're told that even in our conscience, we are aware, even the unbeliever, that when we look at creation, we know there's a creator. Now, the Bible says we'll try to oppress that truth. We'll try to reject that truth. But we are told, whatever that song is, we are told that there is a creator. And we know that. The atheist at the deepest recesses of our heart knows that there is a God. That is why we look for meaning. We might try to deny, deny God, but we know that there is one. And ultimately, we see in God's word that it is Yahweh. It is the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit, who is the one who has created us, who has made us in his image so that we would know him, that we would love him, and that we would enjoy his rest forever. And it's only in a relationship with God well, we have this rest. Now, the objection to this, at least from this text, is, okay, if God gives us rest, if God satisfies us, why does the church want to abandon their faith then? That's a pretty good question, right? This God will satisfy you. This church wants out. Why? What's going on? Um, remember, salvation is a race. It's really important that we think of it that way. It's not simply an event. We often just limit salvation to an event, to a hand raising, to a baptism, to a walking the aisle, to a raising your hand or raising your head in a church. But what we see all throughout Scripture is that salvation is a transformation. It's not about just an event, but it's about becoming new in Christ, so that we would now live an entirely new way. Which again, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, you have been saved. You are standing in the truth of the gospel. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, and then he will say, but we must press on so that we will be saved. So there's both. You are saved and you are being saved. Salvation is not simply an event. And so what the church has done here is they've stopped focusing on Christ. They thought it was an event. We thought we were good. And so now we've taken our eyes off of Christ. And now pains and trials and situations have come, not necessarily just because they took their eyes off of Christ. But now they don't, they don't have an anchor. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. This is why in chapter 3, verse 1, what did the author say? 
Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's why in chapter 12, verse 2, what's the author going to say? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The whole entire book of Hebrews is telling a church who has stopped running the race, look to Jesus and start running again. You've stopped running. You thought salvation was an event, which is what Israel did. Israel was like, well, we saw the ten plagues. We, we saw the Red Sea. You know, we, we had the whole Mount Sinai thing. That was awesome. Like, we're good, right? Didn't enter the rest of God. And so here's the warning for us. You believed in God. Great. You started the race. Now keep running. And this isn't something that you do in your own power. So he's not saying, run. Keep believing really hard so that you will earn your salvation. But rather, he gives us the strength to believe in him every day by the spirit that he places within us. So I want you to think, how do we do this? We're called not only to believe in Jesus in the beginning, but every single day. So we read our Bibles every day, reminding ourselves who we are. Reminding ourselves of the God that has saved us. Reminding ourselves of the God that has created us. Reminding ourselves of God and what he says about sin. What he says about our restless hearts. What he says about how we walk by faith. We read the New Testament, and especially like chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which gives us this amazing description of Jesus. And we go, yes, Jesus is my king. Jesus is my high priest. Jesus is my sacrifice. Jesus is the one who has died so that we could have life. Every day we come back to God's word, reading and trusting this is who God is. I believe this. I will now go forth in this day believing in Christ. Every day we must make that decision. Same thing, we pray. Every day we come and we pray to God because prayer is an act of faith. And we're saying, I need your grace today. If you don't pray, just let yourself know that's an act of unbelief. That's disobedience because God calls us to pray. So if you don't pray, every act of disobedience is what? Is an area of unbelief in your heart. And so if you're not praying, which is just purely uh, trusting in God, we're not trusting and I get prayer is a hard thing. In fact, next week's prayer night, just real quick, next week, there's my, there's my I think that was supposed to be in the uh, announcements, next Sunday night, first Sunday of every month, prayer night, we'll be here, five to seven, we spend time in prayer as a church because we need prayer. We, at that time, we acknowledge, God, we're not going to be faithful without your grace. We're not going to grow without your grace. We're not going to love one another without your grace. We're not going to be husbands that shepherd our families, wives that submit to their husbands, children that obey their parents without your grace. We will not be obedient in any area of our life without your grace. So we say, God, we need your grace. And we pray. Through reading, through praying, we regularly are choosing to believe in God Every single day. That's number one. How we, how we enter the rest. We believe in Christ every day. Number two, we persevere in running the race of faith. Look at verse 11. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So again, this is just kind of further applying the last point. We believe in Jesus. Now we, we strive. We put forth effort. We are zealous in our faith. How do you know you trust in Jesus? You persevere in running the race. 
If you want to know, am I a Christian? Well, am I running the race? Am I believing in Jesus every day? Am I trusting in him? Am I seeking to obey? We're not talking perfection. So don't beat yourself up. Well, I, I did mess up yesterday. Maybe I'm not really saying. You know, we, we all, again, we all struggle in our faith. And every act of disobedience is what? An act of unbelief. So we need to pay attention to those. But it's not until Christ returns that we're going to be made perfect. So we're going to regularly wrestle in our faith. But we keep running the race. In fact, let me read just 1 Corinthians 15 real quick. This is Paul. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand. Meaning, you have believed the gospel. You're standing in the truth of the gospel. And then he says, verse 2, and by which you are being saved. You get that? You are saved and you are what? Being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Wait, what? You see this race metaphor come right back in? You've entered the race. Now keep running the race. Paul's saying, great, you've entered the race. Now keep running the race so that you will complete the race. The Christian life is a race. It's regularly looking at God's word and saying, how do we obey this? And let me just say this. We need community for this. We need one another. This is where we need to spur one another. What's happening right now with this church? They're struggling in their faith. They're beginning to stop running. And so what does the author do? He comes alongside them as a brother and says, we must keep running. This is what we do for one another every single day. We're all like spiritual coaches for one another, encouraging each other to run the race. And we all need it. Because we all struggle at times. Even however strong you may think you are, there is dark nights that we are in those valleys. And that is where the joy of community comes, where we pick one another up and we run with one another. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. In chapter 3, verse 12 of Philippians, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Don't miss it. Jesus has made me his own, which is why he presses on. Our salvation is about running. It's about striving every single day. And we need to know that there's a tendency for us to become sluggish. There's a tendency for us to close the Bible. There's a tendency for us to stop obeying. There's a tendency to put our Christian life on cruise control. Have you ever done that? Just raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're here. Have you ever done that? Yep, you've all done it. Yay. Um, you need to know that. We do that. We get sluggish in our faith. This is why in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, we read these words, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Do you know what those words, failed to reach it, are often used in the first century? It means to stop running. They're used in a race. And anyone who stopped running, they would say those were, they failed to have reached it. They didn't reach the goal. They stopped. And so he's telling them, there is a, you're, stop, you're beginning to stop running. I, when, I was, uh, when I was 12 years old, roughly 12-ish, I can't remember, 11, 12, whatever. I was in junior high. Um, I used to run a lot. In fact, I ran until I was like a sophomore or junior in high school. And then I 
kind of stopped running. Um, but I was one of those, uh, you, you know, you just run miles after miles after miles, never really got tired and just could keep going. Um, and so there was, a, there was a 5K that was at a local park that was near our house. And so I was like, well, 5K is like nothing, so I'll jump in the race and, and do this. And so um, on the race day, I start, I move towards the front. I was either in the front, the very front few. Um, no one else is around me, and I'm making my way around this park. I know this park like the back of my hand. I know how the race is going to go, so I'm making my way, and we're probably about two miles in, and then all of a sudden, the race, they put cones up, and now we're cutting back through the middle of the park, and I was not expecting that. I mean, I was just expecting the full run around the park. Um, I didn't know the way the course was set. I didn't know where the destination was. I didn't know what was happening. So I'm running, and I mean, I was one. I could run 5, 10, 15 miles, no problem, at a pretty quick pace. It was just one of those things that, of course, now it's like, a mile? Really? That's really far. Um, so I don't run anymore because that's crazy. Uh, but as, as I start cutting through, my mind is just rustling, going, where, where, where am I going? What is this happening? And then I could begin to see that uh, where this was cutting through, it was then going to go back to kind of where we started, and it was going to keep going. And I started having thoughts, this is ridiculous. This is the stupidest race in the world. Where are we going? And so I'm just running, but I'm getting discouraged, and then my side starts hurting. Now, if you're a runner, what do you do when your side hurts? You just keep running. And it goes away. It's no problem. I've had that happen many times. Never do I stop because of a side ache. But this time, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where the finish line is. I'm frustrated. My side hurts. And so what do you think I did? I, gr I grumbled. <laughs> I was grumbling the whole time. I stopped running. And I, in fact, I still think about it. I was telling my wife, I think about that. Uh, there's like two events I think about um, probably uh, every week or every other week in my life, and that is one of my events that I think about. I stopped running. And that's what happens in our Christian faith, is all of a sudden we're going and things are going okay, but then something happens and a change takes place. We're turned. A pain comes, a trial comes, persecution happens, a side ache begins to happen. There begins a combination of elements that then we just stop running and we justify it. Well, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's happening. My side hurts. Don't bother me. I'm, it's okay if I stop running. This is where the church is. And my question to you is, have you stopped running? And you can't just glaze past this. But you have to wrestle through. I've been saved. Am I running in obedience? Would my life be described as striving? Am I choosing Christ every single day? Or have I just kind of gone on cruise control? Have I stopped running? Am I off the path? I mean, sure, I still gather with the church because I know I'm supposed to do that. But I'm not actually seeking to obey. No longer am I thinking of Christ as my king, as my savior. And I begin to grumble more. I find that frustrations are coming up more. So I ask you, have you taken your eyes off of Christ? Are you running? 
Would your wife say that you are running? Would your husband say that you're running? Would your children look at you and say, my parents run. Every day it's about pursuing Christ. Would you say that your parents, if your parents here, would you say your parents, your grandparents? As grandparents, would you look at your kids? Or just think through about your Christian life. Just analyze yourself right now. Am I running? This is one reason we need community so much. Because it's in community where, where often someone will say, hey, how are you doing? I noticed you were kind of grumbling a lot the last couple of weeks. Code for, I noticed you haven't been running in your faith much. What's going on? That's what community does. That's why we talk about table groups a whole lot. And that's why you can talk to Steve and Nancy after church today. And they'll talk to you about table groups and why we do that. It's not because we just love eating food, although that's a huge part of it. And we definitely can't run after that. But we do community because in God's word, we see it's about running. The Christian, it's not about you getting to the finish line by yourself. You realize that also. You read the book of Hebrews, it's about us running together. We need one another. So I just encourage you, are you running? Or have you stopped? Last one. We fear the judgment of God. Look at verse 1. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Really? Let us fear? Like, did you see that coming? Like, when I was reading chapter 4, like, let us fear. Like, where did this come? Let us fear. Like, what do we fear? First, or 2 Timothy 1, 7. God gave us a spirit not of fear. I don't fear nothing, right? Like, that's what we say as Christians because we're big and strong. We're like, yeah, we don't fear. We're strong. Um, so what is happening? What? Do we fear? So we need to realize God uses a multiple of means as a way of motivating us in our faith. Okay? When you read God's word, there's a multitude of ways he will encourage us to be faithful. Let me just give some example. He will tell us, um, look at Christ's example. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us. The motivating factor, look at Jesus, then you will also walk in love. The salvation of others. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So what's he telling you to do? Live in obedience so that others will believe in Jesus. The futility of sin, Matthew 6, 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Don't be anxious. It does nothing for you. Character of God. Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Therefore be holy as I am holy. He says look to God. He's holy. Therefore be holy. Love for Christ. John 14.15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Fear of judgment. Hebrews 10.26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book, Hole in Our Holiness. Really good book. He gave 40 ways that God motivates us to run the race, to be faithful. One of the ways 
is fear of judgment. And I'm betting most of us ignore that one. We think when we get to those passages, well, that's, that's for unbelievers. That's for those who, who, who don't run the race ever, who, who never believed in God. But he's, caught, he's talking to the church. So how do we see this? Well, look at verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13, and next week we're just going to spend the entire time in these two verses. Um, but verse, these, these, these two verses are packed full of truth, but they're often spoke outside of context. I bet you've never heard them in context, or not often. Verse 12, the author speaks about the character of God's word. It's living, it's active, it's sharp. It can divide soul, spirit, joint, marrow, thoughts, intentions. Well, why do we need this really sharp word? Why do we need to know this? Well, look at verse 13. The author now moves from the word to God. And he says that there is no creature in all of creation that is hidden from God. God sees everything. It's as though we are naked before him, and there is a day that you and I and every single creature... So just to you know, be clear, everything will appear before him and give an account. So we put these two verses in context of chapters 3 and 4. The author says, persevere in the faith, enter the rest of God. Don't be like Israel and disobey unless you want to also experience the judgment of God. Because you will all stand before him and do not think that you'll be able to say, I was at the Red Sea. I was at that event. Don't you remember when I raised my hand? Like, I'm good, God, right? His word is sharp. It divides thoughts and intentions. He sees everything with perfect clarity in your heart. He knows whether we've run the race or not. There's no sneaking into the rest of God. And so the lens, with this massive warning, run the race Believe in God every day. Strive to, enter the, strive to enter and think about the judgment of God. And I don't think he's trying to scare us into it. I don't think he's trying to scare us into this fiery fury. But I think he's saying, you want to you trust in something other than God? You think something other than Jesus will satisfy you? Let's just play this out where it goes. You, you want to trust in those things? You'll experience the fire of fury of God's wrath. I mean, think about it. When we're in the New Testament, we often read, uh, we read about God's wrath. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 is described as a lake of fire. Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Psalms, we read about God's judgment. To break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions. Let them be like the snail that dissolves in the slime. That's disgusting, huh? Psalm 58, in case you want to go read that, and put, put that on a coffee cup. <laughs> like, where's that one? Now, see, that one, Jennifer, I could get on board with. She gave me a coffee cup the other day. It was awesome. Um, yeah, Romans 8. He's not trying to scare us in, but he's saying just... You, you want to trust in something else? You want to go to Judaism? You want to go to atheism? You want to go to Buddhism? You want to go to Hinduism? You want to go to anything else? Let's just play that out. This is where that's going to go if you don't run the race. You won't enter rest. You will enter fury and fire. I remember one day 
when I was young, um, some of you probably have had some instance like this, uh, but I go into my mom's bathroom, she's fixing her hair, and she has one of those weapons on the, uh, on the kitchen counter, on the bathroom counter called an iron, you know, a curling iron, and I grabbed that, burned my entire hand, all, like, I went screaming through the house, and I think she was, like, screaming after me, like, come back, come back, and who knows what she did, but flour or cornstarch or doesn't something like that help? I don't know. Um, aloe vera, but she burned my entire hand. I never did that again. <laughs> Some things you just got to learn the hard way. Um, but there was a searing that took place. And just think, just think through that if you've ever burned yourself. And then just think through the analogies and the metaphors that God gives us of hell. It's a lake of fire. It's a fury of fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know how literal all of those are actually supposed to be, but I think the message is clear. Think of grabbing that iron, but that iron being all over you, intense amount of burning and searing and pain, and it never alleviating ever. I think that's what we're supposed to be thinking of when we think through the judgment of God. And again, he's not trying to scare us. He's just saying, trust in me. I sent my son. He would die on a cross that you'd be saved, that you would enter the rest and that you would live with me forever. And if you want anything else, just know there's only pain. So he's not trying to be cruel, but he, in his word, is showing us the pain of that. And he's saying, just trust in me. And if you have stopped running the race, he's saying, run the race. That's the message. So if you're here and you're not running the race, he's saying, think through this judgment. Think about the path that you're on. And he's saying, repent and run the race. Because if you go any other way, there is only pain, there's only fury, and there is only fire. But in the presence of Christ, there is rest. There is rest now, and you will experience the fullness of that rest when he returns for all of eternity. Um, we're going to close and take communion. And as we do so, um, I think my only application is just repentance. <laughs> like, that's just it. I don't care who you are. If you're not a believer, if you're, if you're not yet believed in Christ, I urge you to repent. What, what is the path that you're going? What, what is it promising and just look at the futility of it. I encourage you to repent and believe in Christ. They enter into the rest. Start the race. And if you are here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you just realize, man, there are areas that I'm not trusting God, or I have just totally stopped running the race, then I just encourage you, just repent. Repent today and just believe in Christ. Believe in the goodness of of our Savior who has come and died so you could have everlasting life. And if you are just wrestling and you, for some reason, you're just like, look, my soul's not right today. It's okay if you don't take communion. If you know you need to go and talk to other people first and ask forgiveness, it's okay to pass on communion. That's fine. I don't want you to feel like you must take this today. But if you're able to, just spend time in repentance as, as it gets passed out and as the team sings, and you know that you can take it, 
And I encourage you. And remember, we don't take it because we're perfect right now. We take it because of the goodness of our Savior, and he's making us perfect. And there is a day coming where we will see Jesus as he is when we finish the race and he has returned. So let me pray, and the men will come past these, or have you come take these. Father, we come to you now. And we just ask that you give grace. Lord, this is a, this is a weighty message. A weighty message to a church that has, be, that has begun to stop running. And I can't help but think that I know there's people here who have stopped running. And I know that for every single one of us, there's areas of unbelief. There's acts of disobedience that we have been doing. And I just pray that you would reveal those. And that we right now, just in our, in our seats and in our hearts, we would just repent. And we'd confess that you are Savior. And that we would trust in you today. And we would begin running the race, either for the first time, or we would start running again. And we would keep our eyes on your son, Jesus. Looking forward to the day that he returns, bringing forth the new heavens and new earth, where we will spend eternity with him. Bless this communion time now. In your name, Jesus, amen.